We've been sitting and walking and standing and engaging in various expressions of practice for now four days together. And we might sometimes wonder whether we've produced anything of significance or value, whether we've uh, got to where we were supposed to get or achieved what we were meant to achieve. And it's, I think, very interesting how we think in those terms. It's not something we necessarily question in many contexts of our lives. In fact, we're very much encouraged to think in that way. And it's easy to relate to spiritual practice in terms of, well, I have to develop more mindfulness and wisdom. I have to generate more loving kindness and compassion. And it's fine and okay to understand and to look at the process from that point of view. And yet it's equally true and sometimes very useful, perhaps we could say even more deeply true, to see this process as not so much the creation of, the development of something more or different, not so much that we get from somewhere that we are to somewhere we're supposed to be, but much more a process of uncovering and of revealing what's already here, of discovering and seeing for ourselves what is most true in this that we call the experience of being alive. And the Buddha, in the last days of his life, came to a little place in the, in the woods where he lay down. And he spoke at quite some length, giving his final teachings. And one of the phrases that he used and these phrases are recorded in the Pali language, which was the, the local language of the region he lived in. At the time they were written down, and um, the Pali language, and have been translated, and there's various different ways and translations of pretty much everything he said, so we don't know exactly what the words were, because um, we only have pointers to them in the form of translations, but one of the translations of some of the last words he spoke were essentially the invitation, the injunction, the encouragement to make of yourself a lamp. Not make for yourself a lamp, but make of yourself a lamp. And... I've often reflected on this, this choice of, of language, of words. What is a lamp? 
guess you're familiar with the word, even if English is not your first language. Does anyone not know what a lamp is? I'm thinking particularly if English isn't your first language. Yeah, it's a common word, isn't it? If one thinks about it, a lamp is a, we could say a, a piece of equipment, a tool, a thing, a machine, or whatever it is, that transforms fuel into light and heat. It's the basic principle of a lamp. There's a, many different variations on it. But it transforms some form of material, we call it fuel, whether it be a paraffin lamp or even an electric lamp. Some kind of fuel is transformed into light, into heat. And we can have lamps we use for illumination and lamps we use for warmth. And these two qualities that we could understand as being what a lamp produces are what I'd like to use as a framework for looking at what we're doing here. Light and warmth. We could perhaps understand the practice of cultivating presence, mindfulness, Awareness, that quality of being fully here, as a, as a way in which we illuminate the truth of our experience. And we could equally understand the cultivation or development of loving kindness, compassion and friendliness as the bringing of warmth to this life bringing of warmth to this world, to ourselves and to each other. Now we have, in fact, we use those kind of metaphors and images when we speak about clarity and wisdom as illumination. When we speak about a warm heart, we're referring to its kindliness, not its temperature. And these qualities are something we could understand as constructed, developed, or cultivated through our practice. But in fact, they are the inherent and fundamental nature of what it is that we're here to understand. And they are not something that are necessarily constructed developed or created through our practice, but that which is revealed. That which is revealed by this process, this journey that we're engaged in. We may recognize, we may have some sense of what that might mean. We might find that a little perplexing or bemusing as a suggestion. And whichever way that lands for you, just uh, let that be okay if you can. If we 
reflect or if we look at our experience of what's going on, there's a this that we call life being known through sights and sounds and smell and taste and touch and cognizing thought. There isn't anything that's happened to any one of us in our life. We haven't had any experience that falls outside that framework of sights, sounds, smell, taste, touch, which is tactile body sensory experience, or cognizing thought. All our experiences come down to these six fields of experience. And it seems they just happen. They are arising. They are known. We don't have to really do that much for all this to be here. And what we can also notice is that with that there's a a care, there's a concern, there's an interest, there's an involvement and a sense of significance that is found within all of this. Which for us engages us with it. Which we could say expresses a care about it. These things that we smell, that we taste, that we touch, that we feel, that we conceive, we care about them. Sometimes we care about them in the sense of a caring of not liking them, but we still care about them. We're engaged with them. And there's a way in which the the habitual orientation we have of looking for something to be other than, better than, or different than the way it is. Looking for ourselves to be other than, different than, or better than the way we are. That this orients us into our life in such a way that we're constantly looking out and away from where we are. And much of our practice is really an invitation and encouragement to turn back towards, to look in a way 180 degrees differently in terms of direction from our habitual view which goes out to what we see, what we perceive, what we conceive, what we sense. And in using the word seeing here, I'm not talking about the visual sense, but the way in which we construct a version or a, we could say, an articulation of the world that makes some degree of sense to us, although there's usually quite a few bits that don't really quite make sense to us. We tend to gloss them over a little bit, usually. And somehow in that relationship we experience a sense of something limiting or limited or something lost. Something not quite fulfilling. When we're oriented outwardly like that, when we're oriented into looking at the experiences and looking for satisfaction in them or through them, we somehow find we don't get to that place. We see that whatever comes doesn't sustain. Even the lovely and the delightful doesn't give us, can't give us lasting satisfaction. 
And so we're looking, 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 looking. And so often lost in that seems urgent and sometimes desperate, seeking for conditions, circumstances, situations, experiences. Maybe in the context of the retreat, meditative experience or even insight or qualities of loving kindness. We can have the sense of looking for them. Looking for them. And it's like we're always looking away. We're always looking out. Or so much of the time, it seems that's what we're doing. And we find ourselves fragmented as a result. We find a sense of all these different things that we feel like are either pulling on us or we're pulling on them. In lots of different ways. Or they're pushing on us or we're pushing on them. It's kind of the same. We might feel it pushing, pulling. And there's a a kind of a deep sense of dissatisfaction with that. There's a, there's a, a deep lack of freedom in that. Being bound to, entangled with, and struggling with the content, with the makeup, with the form in which our experience presents itself. In the practice, what we start with, what we essentially engage with, to begin with, we could say, we're learning non-distractedness. We think we're developing mindfulness or awareness or presence or some other word we might use to describe what we think we're doing. And it's, it's okay, that's allowed, it's not wrong as such. But when we actually look at what we can do, can we get ourselves to be mindful or stay present? No. We, we actually don't do that so much. What we do is engage with the tendency to depart and engage with it by recognizing it and coming back. Releasing the urge and the habit to be distracted. It's interesting, traction. It's like there's a pull. And distracted is pulled away from where we wish to be engaged. That's kind of what it means, doesn't it? Distracted. I mean, it would be easy if the breath was really attractive and we were really attracted to be with it. We'd be great meditators, wouldn't we? All of us. Because it would be like, great, it's another breath. Whoa, here we go. Yes. But it's not like that for us. Sometimes it's more like, hey, there's a thought. (coughs) Or there's a thing. Or whatever. We get distracted, pulled away. But when we actually look at what's happening there, in the moment of seeing or releasing the pull of distraction, there's something very natural and organic happening. There's actually the knowing of this experience that's right there. Have you ever kind of wondered about how it is that when we're lost, confused, out there, gone. And actually, it's not really a problem when we're lost, is it? We don't even know we're lost. That's the definition of it. So it's not that much of a problem. And then somehow, out of that kind of unconsciousness, emerges this recognition of what's happening. This, oh, I'm here. Now, initially, we go, I'm here. Damn, I wasn't supposed to be there. I'm supposed to be somewhere else. Okay? That's what we do. Almost everyone does that when they start meditation and 
I have to tell you, not just when they start. Um, it continues, that one, for some at least, it seems, some of us. Um, but if we actually see what happens, it's like we weren't there. And initially, in the arising of consciousness, we become awake in that moment. There's a sense that, oh no, I messed up. But if we keep watching, we see that, oh, I didn't do that. I was here, I was present, and then suddenly, gone. 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 And I didn't necessarily choose to go somewhere. Sometimes we do. Of course, that's different. I think, hmm, had enough of this, I'll go somewhere. We actually see ourselves do that. But often it just happens. Something grabs the mind, and we're gone. Or the mind grabs hold of something, and it's gone. We can describe it either way. The attention gets entangled with something that seems to present to us something either juicy that will give us more satisfaction or something problematic that we really need to resolve. And it goes for that. It engages with that. But what happens when we suddenly become awake again? By definition, we weren't there in the previous moment. We were unconscious. We couldn't have turned on the light ourselves because we weren't there. We didn't know what was happening. We were lost in the story. Do you follow why that's really interesting and curious? It's not like I'm sitting there thinking, oh, I'm really lost here. I should turn the light on and come back to being present. No. It's like we're gone. And then, whoa, here we are. As we begin to become, or as we're more and more able to release the habit, the urge and the compulsion towards distraction, we might begin to notice that the wakefulness that's there is just there. Or we could say, it's just here. There's this knowing of being awake that's just happening right here. And we're not needing to get something or fix something or get rid of something or create something or get somewhere else or be someone else. There's just the experiencing of this taking place. And it doesn't have a particularly obvious or discernible sense of a boundary to it. It's encompassing. That's what we, it, Whatever it is that's here, the knowing of it knows it. And this capacity, and we can use different words to speak about it, awareness, presence, are sometimes words that are used for this, but we easily go beyond their usefulness by making them into a something, when in fact they're pointing to the nature of something that's taking place. But nonetheless, here am I talking, I've got to do it with words. So, what happens with this, we can call this quality of of knowing, of awareness, of presence. Within it, there's this capacity to attend, to focus, to pick up. And that's how we can distinguish and discern particular experiences. And it's really useful and helpful. It helps us tell, for instance, the kind of things that might be going to eat us, which we should avoid, and the kind of things we might like to eat, which are kind of useful if we want to stay alive in both cases. 
So we're kind of wired up to keep an eye out for those two things and a few other things as well. But what happens is that with that capacity to attend, the mind takes hold of and narrows around the awareness, the quality of presence, the knowing capacity, takes hold of and narrows, contracts and fixes around something particular, such as a thought, such as an image, such as a sense of who we take ourselves to be. And there's a sense of constriction. There's a sense of contraction. And a kind of a, a process in that that creates a positioning and a location that's limited and fixed in time and space. That has the appearance of being what's really going on. But it's in fact an appearance. Not what's really going on. Because what's really going on is not the thing that's been focused on. Because these things are actually changing. They are fluid. They're moving, morphing, shifting, dissolving one after another. And we can see that. And we do see that as we watch, as we practice, as we look and see. The fluidity, the transience, the evanescence of experience. It's constantly changing nature starts to show more clearly. And when we release this tendency to lock on, to focus in, to hold, or we could say identify, which is in a way self-define our self in relationship to what it is that we're experiencing, despite it being transient, we tend to fix on and say, this is what or who I am. Well, this is what or who the world is. We make something fixed and solid out of it by that fixing on, that function of attention locking on and then a conclusion being formed from that. And when we release that or when we relinquish that locked inness, there's often a moment of sense of, ah, We actually are grateful in some sense to come back. That's why we're so upset that we were lost. There's something that happens when we become more fully present again. And it's got an expansive quality to it. It's got an unboundaried, unbound, unlimited quality to it, which we don't necessarily discern or perceive. We don't just think, oh, I'm really glad I'm present right here again because now I'm not quite so constricted around the thing I was locked into or lost in. We might conceive that. We might see it that clearly. But more often we just, there's a sense of, ah, we're back. Ah, there's a sense of landing, a sense of settling. But there's also a kind of an opening, a natural expansion that takes place in that. And we perhaps can sometimes see that there's a a quality which we could describe as radiance associated with this knowing faculty insofar as it touches everything in its field so as long as it's not held within a constriction of identification it's actually fluid and 
just as the radiance of the sun shines on all things. So too, this knowing capacity simply knows what's here. And within that, there's a sense, perhaps we could describe it as being present, or being awake, or being aware, that has a certain substantiality to it without being fixed. A certain fluidity to it without being uncoherent, uncohered, or incoherent. Has a, a kind of a a locatedness without being really quite locatable. Like we can't put our finger on it and say, oh, it's this or it's that. The tendency of the mind to want to, in a way, put its finger on something and say, got it, is that process of trying to lock onto something and hold it. It comes out of a sense of needing to find something other than what's here and to hold it in place or keep it in place. And that movement, that attempt to take hold of experience, or more fundamentally of building blocks for constructing our sense of identity, that urge comes out of not seeing clearly the, the unbounded and, you could say, radiant quality or nature of what it is to be present, to be awake, in this moment. And this, we could say, qualitative dimension of what's happening has a, a tangible here-ness and now-ness which isn't bound to the thing that we might be seeing or hearing or feeling or tasting or touching or thinking. And it's not something, as I said, we can take hold of, but it's something that when we're not trying to take hold of anything, that's when we recognize it. It's in the relinquishing of the grasping hold of experience that this actually becomes evident as the the ground in which all of that is taking place. And it's not something that's produced by relinquishing the grasping or the habit of pursuing and seeking after. It's simply revealed by that relinquishing, equally as it's obscured by the activity of constantly seeking for something other than what's here. And this is something that is, we could say, innate. The natural condition. And this is one aspect, we could say, one facet of the the truth that we can come to see and explore.
more and more deeply in our lives and through practice. And so this practice of non-distractedness, of relinquishing distractedness, of allowing there to be a gathering, a settling, a collecting in the hereness and the nowness of life, just as it is, just as we are, it starts to perhaps reveal something to us. Slowly we start to sense, almost intuit, but actually more precisely recognize and realize what's here. And the second primary dimension of our practice, we've spoken of in many different ways, is the the process of releasing our reactivity. So I was talking about releasing the distractive tendency, which is constantly looking out, moving away towards many other things. And then also attending to what we could call non-resistance, non-reactivity, seeing the compelling habits and tendencies to push away, to grasp hold of, seeing that these express themselves in a way that creates a sense of dis-ease, unease in us, and a sense, again, of a closing down, of a cutting off, of a disconnecting. And much of the, the suffering and the distress that we experience is as a result of what those reactive patterns have done in response to experience. So it's not that we judge them, but we start to see, oh, actually this pattern of pushing away leads to more suffering. And the pattern of trying to grab hold and keep hold of things leads to more suffering. It's not actually serving us. We start to learn what it means to release those patterns. And this is a slow and at times challenging undertaking. But as we begin to release the way in which we start to first of all see that it's happening and then start to understand how that works and the mechanisms of it, the underlying beliefs and assumptions, and particularly is that sense of if I can get and have and keep this thing, that will be the fulfillment of my life. Then I'll be happy. Then I'll be well. Then I'll be peaceful. Then I'll be fill in the blank. It's like somehow this experience is given the authority or the meaning or the power. Therefore, of course, if that were true, wouldn't it make sense to grab hold of it? But it's not true. Or in the, in the reactivity of, um, of the aversive direction, it's the sense of this thing has to go. This, it's not possible for me to be happy in the presence of this. I can only suffer if this experience continues. And again, we give the experience this immense amount of power and authority and inevitably then get entangled in a struggle with it. In this case, to try and get rid of the experience. Not seeing that in both those cases, it's actually the entanglement with it and the grasping or the pushing away that's causing the deeper distress. That's in the one case disconnecting us from or making distant the sense of happiness. Or generating 
the sense of suffering. And what happens in those moments, and we don't necessarily do this, but we might see it happen sometimes. We might be here when it happens. Because again, I'm not talking about see visually. I'm talking about the knowing of the experience. We might notice it happening when there isn't fear or anger. When there isn't a sense of pursuing, of needing to get hold of and keep. What do we notice in that condition. And there might just be moments of it. And there's a sense of, ah, yes, there's a recognition. There's something in us recognize what that is. There's a certain peace to it, a peacefulness to it. And there's also a, a way in which we feel more expansive, in which the capacity for extending a sense of kindliness, of friendliness, is, we could say, amplified, because we experience it as being more than it was. So we could say amplified, but ultimately it's that we're recognizing or we're seeing it more as it truly is. The capacity for, we could say, love or caring, is likewise something boundless, something unlimited in its nature and capacity, but experienced by us as limited because of the way in which we attach to, we identify with, we contract around patterns of reactivity, of reaching for and of pushing away, based on a misconceiving, in fact, of what's really happening and of what's really true. And the practice is very much for us to begin to see what is most deeply true, to see more and more deeply into this. When we find ourselves in perhaps those moments of non-reactivity, and perhaps they're just moments initially, and we're just here and we're not chasing after or pushing away. Of course, what easily happens is a sense of, great, got it. We try and hold it. Then we see the holding and we think, damn, did it again. Get rid of that. <coughs> and we get caught in the same cycle. But as we start to perhaps become a little more familiar, we can just pause. Oh, look, what's happening? I.e., nothing. But in that, it's not nothing. Because naturally the sense of how we care for, how we value, how there's something precious right here is evident. And we can know that or feel that in a sense of feeling touched by or connected with or just a very exquisite sense of, of, of love or appreciation for this experience, this moment, someone else, ourselves. And it's the sort of thing that is regularly reported on and experience that perhaps we know quite well. Just those moments when we're touched. When there's not necessarily something special happening and yet there's something special revealed within the ordinariness of what's happening. And there's a, a way in which our heart expands or in which we actually 
be more precise, we recognize the vastness of our heart's capacity more and more fully, perhaps in a way we had not seen. Caring is innate. This that we call love is not something we construct. The patterns of reactivity that become layered around it, we have to work with, we have to see and understand in order to begin to release. But as and when and to the degree that we're able to do that, the natural radiance of the heart in the expression of of love is what shines forth. And again, this is something we recognize. This is something we recognize. And it's this, in fact, that we're looking for. It's this, in fact, that we're wishing to more deeply know. When we're not caught in reactive patterns, that loving that is, that caring that is innate, that is natural, that we could say is more what we are than any of the stories we tell ourselves, any of the experiences or the summaries of our history that we might carry with us. And I'm not suggesting that to disrespect those stories or that those configurations born of our past experience, which we call history, don't have a significant impact in the present, that don't need to be cared for and handled skillfully, because they do. And there's a learning and a growing through that and in that that's important for us all. But that so easily, based on those experiences, history, stories, we can come to... misconstrue or or not quite trust what it is that lies at the core of our hearts and of what we are. And this capacity for love, it gets kind of, how do I say this, Um, it becomes limited by the way we identify and the way we conceive, so that it only becomes available to that which we relate to with a sense of connection and caring. That which we see as me or mine, those that I care for. But picking up some from the the thread of Gersten's talk last night, that sense of separation that we believe so easily because of the surface appearance of things. When we're operating from that place, love is something limited because our perceiving is limited. When we see that that appearance is not absolute 
or ultimately real. Love itself, likewise, is unlimited. Its unbounded and radiant nature becomes clear and apparent. There's a natural sense of wanting to care for life, for others equally as oneself. It's not something one does. It's not because we got good at it. We finally figured out what the trick was that they didn't tell us. It's actually just what happens. And we might look at what's going on in a really different way. And I often find it useful to contemplate this body. We call it ours. But you know, it's a it's a multi-occupancy organism. The biological tissues here, the organic structures here, are occupied by many, many beings. Have you ever thought about that? You like to say me here, mine. But actually, if this was a democracy... We'd be way outvoted by all the little fellas. <laughs> way outvoted. And it's kind of interesting, isn't it? It sort of sounds a bit silly and a little bit ridiculous, and there's something amusing about it, but it actually runs really deep. Because that's just a, a microcosm of this world this body there's so much life going on in here and we think it's me or mine it's ours it's ours all of it and I'm not just talking about our body here and there's something in us that knows that that deeply feels the pain of living in a way that dishonours that. And there are so many times we might be reminded of how deep that knowing runs in us. There's a story I heard of a of a young girl who, she was about uh, like eight years old, had a very serious uh, blood disorder. I think it was a, uh, I forget the proper name, but a kind of form of cancer that um, affects the blood, the bone marrow and the blood production capacity. And she was dying. And she needed a transplant of bone marrow. But they couldn't find, to get some healthy bone marrow for her, they couldn't find a donor with a matching, um, matching tissue that would be appropriate. Till they finally tested her younger brother. He was only five. And they realised, oh, he had the right bone marrow. So they explained the situation because they didn't feel they could just take his bone marrow without asking him, getting his permission. They explained to him, they said, you know, your sister's dying and um, she's really ill, she's dying and we, and she hasn't got any bone marrow and we'd like to give her some of yours. Would that be okay with you? And apparently the story, he was very quiet and sort of took a little time just without any words and then eventually just Wide eyes nodded, yes. And so they took him to the hospital and the surgery took place, the transplant was given. And a little while after in the hospital he he looked to his parents and he said, 
I don't know if I've got the wording exactly right, but something like, can you tell me now when I will die? And he'd thought he was being asked to give up his life for his sister, and he'd said yes. And there's something just very deeply touching and beautiful in that, I think. But also it speaks so clearly to something that we know of love and of its its movement of ultimately unbounded capacity. That this is inherent. This little boy hadn't been educated in self-sacrifice, at least as far as I know. And I sometimes think, what? What was the knowing that was there? What was the wisdom and the love? Something incredible and beautiful. And there are stories of this throughout our world in so many forms and shapes of this ability to just offer oneself so fully and deeply. And to me it speaks again of this that is the very nature of what we are. And the nature of love is that it is something that sees whatever it sees is not separate from itself. It sees whatever it sees or whatever is encountered. It holds it as not different than itself. When we look with love on another, we care for them equally as we care for ourselves. That's what love means. And it's that very caring and that Love that, in fact, dissolves the boundary and the sense of the apparent separation. And that's why it's so deeply touching to us and why it's so important and precious to us to allow the loving in our lives to be full as it may be and grow as it can because it aligns us with the deeper truth of that non-separateness. And this quality of caring and of love that is, again, it's simply revealed in the releasing of reactivity and the relinquishing of the habits of reactivity and the drivers of that, those habits. It's simply what's here. We don't have to make it happen. It's here. And it has this radiant quality again. It has the sense of flowing out. And the Buddha spoke of the practice of loving kindness as being having a radiant quality to it, of allowing this quality of kindness to extend outwards, just as the sun shines on all things. So too, this radiant quality of heart, extending to all beings, to all life, to all things. This radiance that expresses itself as awareness and as love. These two dimensions, we could say, these two faces or facets of what's most deeply true. We could say these are the knowable, the recognisable facets of what is awake. Which in some traditions of Buddhist teaching is called Buddha nature. 
the awakened nature. And the human condition is so often to be unaware of this radiance. This radiant nature. This awakened nature. And therefore lost in the pursuit and the chasing of what the radiance reveals. Turning that 180 degree turn that I spoke of earlier, when we start to turn from the things that we are drawn to, to actually start to notice what is it that's drawn? Where does this come from? When we actually turn and we start to see what's here, the urge to pursue something else the belief that we need to be something other than what we already are. This loses traction. It ceases to be able to pull us in the way that it has. And ultimately, that traction dissolves and is gone. The Buddha once said, he said, Friends, this heart-mind, citta, as Kirsten spoke of yesterday, this heart-mind is luminous, brightly shining. It is visited and afflicted by conditions that come from outside. This the untrained, ordinary person does not understand. And for them there is no development of this heart-mind. He said, friends, this heart-mind is luminous, radiant, brightly shining. It is free from the afflictions and the conditions which visit it. This the wise understand. And for them there is the development of this heart-mind. This heart-mind that is radiant, brightly shining, luminous. We are invited to be interested in this that is being revealed through each moment, through the contact with every experience. It's always here. It's never other than what it is. And yet, it isn't a something we can put our finger on, nor yet a nothing we can dismiss. Our mind only operates within those two frames of reference. And hence, there's a little problem with the language. But this we can know in and for ourselves. In this heart, this mind, that we are, this can be known. 
And so we can understand as the fundamental blindness or ignorance of which the Buddha spoke as the the kind of the the root condition of suffering, of entanglement. We can understand it as the not seeing of our nature or of the nature of things. And that in the seeing of that, the entanglement within the cycle of suffering is dissolved. To awake to the radiance To awaken to the radiance is to see all things exactly as they were and are. And yet transformed in the same moment. I'd like to read a poem by Mary Oliver. The Buddha's Last Instruction. And I'll read through it perhaps a couple of times because just to get the feeling of it, it, I'll just give you a framework for it. it. It's speaking, as you'll get, of both the scenario of the Buddha's final instructions but also of the poet thinking about them in another location. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness, to send up the first signal, a white fan, streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees, and he might have said anything, knowing it was his final hour, The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire. Clearly I'm not needed, yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. I think of this every morning as the east begins to tear off its many clouds of darkness to send up the first signal, a white fan streaked with pink and violet, even green. An old man, he lay down between two sala trees and he might have said anything knowing it was his final hour. The light burns upward, it thickens and settles over the fields. Around him the villagers gathered and stretched forward to listen. Even before the sun itself hangs disattached in the blue air, I am touched everywhere by its ocean of yellow waves. No doubt he thought of everything that had happened in his difficult life. And then I feel the sun itself as it blazes over the hills like a million flowers on fire.
Clearly I'm not needed. Yet I feel myself turning into something of an explicable value. Slowly beneath the branches he raised his head. He looked into the faces of that frightened crowd. Make of yourself a light, said the Buddha before he died. make of ourselves a light or a lamp to be that in which the ordinary material of this world is transformed into light and warmth into love and wakefulness this is This is what the practice invites us and offers us to be. And in that, the lines from Mary Oliver's poem, Clearly I'm not needed here. And yet I feel myself turning into something of inexplicable value seems to me a remarkable freedom and beauty revealed that in a sense we aren't needed here. We won't be here forever. We don't need to make too much of our personal version of a human story. And yet at the same time as we can begin to perhaps let that go, not hold that so tightly, perhaps we can also come to see and in that very releasing of that that we are turning into something of inexplicable value. (coughs) So let's sit quietly together for a few moments. So in our practice here together and in our lives, may the light of awareness and the warmth of love radiate unbound through our our hearts and this world for our own well-being and for the welfare of all beings. 
So thank you for your practice here and your presence. We have this last evening together for the retreat and some time for walking, standing or sitting if you wish. And our next sitting in 25 minutes at 9 o'clock. Just want to mention for tomorrow morning, as one or two have asked and perhaps a few more are wondering what's happening, we'll uh, begin as we have done, the wake up at 6.30 and sitting at 7 o'clock. And then at 7.15 there will be a, uh, a talk on the tradition of and the practice of dana and also from the um, coordinators with regard to the practical elements of ending of the retreat or heading towards it. And so it's really important that you're all here, please, at 7.15 tomorrow morning, all of you who are here on the group retreat. And um, at the end of that time, we will also, with breakfast at 7.40, there will also be the opportunity to speak a little for the first time. And uh, we'll say a little bit about how that will be useful and how it can work tomorrow morning. Um, It's really important that between now and then you keep the silence and really stay with the process of the practice. The retreat will be finished by lunchtime and uh, you'll be free to stay for lunch or head off as you wish. For now, we're still here. And this is a really precious opportunity and time to continue to share and to explore the silence, the stillness, and this heart of love and wisdom.